Amen. If you have a Bible, if you turn to Acts chapter 5, if you don't have one, uh, there should be one in front of you. And if you don't have one at home, feel free to grab one on the resource table on the way out. We'd love for you to have one. So Acts chapter 5, starting at verse 12. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared to join them, but the people held them in high esteem. More than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported. We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. Someone came and told them, Look! The men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, and yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than man. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him in his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these, before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or if this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is, was of, of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be opposing God. So they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching the Christ, that the Christ is Jesus. Well, I played hockey a lot when I was growing up. Um, I played on a travel team and played for my high school team. I also coached uh, with my dad. I coached my brother's team. And so it was not uncommon that I would be at the rink three, four, five times a week. 
And I would do like off-ice training, you know, during the off-season. And I would think about hockey all the time. It was a huge part of my life. And I don't know if I realized it at the time, but there were kind of two motivators that motivated me. Of course, I loved to play the game in and of itself, but there were two other motivators that motivated me to play hockey. The first was, it was a way to have a relationship with my dad. So my dad would take me to practices, and we would talk uh, before the game and after the game, and we'd talk about the strategy of the game, and he coached some of my teams. And so hockey was about connecting with my dad. It was something that we could do together. Uh, also, since the time I was a little kid, I wanted to play in the NHL. And of course, people told me that was a crazy idea. But always in the back of my th mind, I thought to myself, well, maybe, just maybe, if I work hard enough, if I get good enough, I would have a chance to make it. So I had those two kind of motivators that drove me to play hockey to have a relationship with my dad, not that I had a bad relationship, but it was a way of connecting with my dad and also this opportunity that maybe, just maybe, I could move on to play in the NHL. Well, I graduated from high school, and of course I didn't make the NHL. I didn't make even a Division I team, didn't receive any scholarships or anything like that. But I had the opportunity to play for a, a club team at the college I was going to. And I went out for the first practice, and there were a lot of other good players. I don't know for sure if I would have made the team. But I looked at the commitment that was involved in playing on that team, and I would have had to work really, really hard. And even if I worked really, really hard, I don't know how much ice time I would have gotten because there was, they carried a, you know, a whole bunch of players. And so I'm thinking to myself, for the first time in my life, I don't know if I really want to play hockey anymore. And really what it came down to was those two motivators to play hockey were taken away. Connecting with my dad. I was in college now. I drove myself to practice to games. And of course he would still come to some games, but it wouldn't be the same kind of relationship that we would have when he was coaching and I was coaching with him and he'd drive me to practice. Also, that dream of playing in the NHL was done. I wasn't going to make it to the NHL playing on a club hockey team at a, at a small college. And so after thinking about those things, I thought to myself, I don't love the game of hockey that much. I don't love it that much to put in this much time, this much effort to try to make the team and try to get playing time and have to drive around to all these different cities to play different teams. I, I don't love it that much. You know, when you think about it, I, I kind of love the things related to hockey more than I love the game of hockey itself. Love spending time with my dad. I love the opportunity, or what I thought was the opportunity to maybe advance to play in the NHL. But when those things were taken away, when the accessories were kind of taken away, I didn't want to play hockey anymore. But today I have a very simple and profound question for us to consider. Uh, a, a question that's very convicting, that's convicted my own heart. And that question is, is Jesus enough for you? Is Jesus enough for you? We see in this passage that the apostles are passionately in love with Jesus and devoted to Jesus. We see in the first part of the passage that many signs and wonders are being done. People are being saved. People are being added to their number. But then the apostles kind of hit a brick wall. The high priest is jealous of the, the recognition that they're getting. They're jealous that all the people are going to the apostles 
and they determined to, to put them in jail. So they put the apostles in jail, and then that doesn't stop the Holy Spirit. Uh, the angel of the Lord comes, and he opens up the gates of the prison. And you would think at that point that the apostles would learn their lesson. You would think that they would go into hiding. You would think that even if they shared their message, maybe they would do it quietly. But no, they go right back into the temple, preaching the gospel again and again and again. And the high priests and the officials, the Sadducees, come to them and say, I thought we told you to stop preaching the name of Jesus. And the apostles are like, well, we got to honor God. we got to obey God rather than man. And this infuriates the high priest and the leaders. They want to put them to death. And if not for uh, a wise uh, teacher named Gamaliel, they would have put the apostles to death. So they resolve that they just going to teach them a lesson. They're going to beat them and then release them. Now we think about that and maybe we overlook the fact that they were beaten, but this would have been probably a very severe beating. They probably would have been close to death by the time this beating was over with. And yet after all of this, after all this persecution, being imprisoned, being beaten, being told and threatened not to preach the name of Jesus, it says in the text in verse 41 that they went away rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They were rejoicing for suffering dishonor. This is something that in the ancient world wouldn't have made any sense. In the, in the ancient world, it was kind of a shame uh, and honor culture. And so they did these things. They were beaten so that they would be put to shame, so that people would see them and say, this is what happens when you follow Jesus. This is what happens when you disobey the religious authorities. And so they're trying to shame them to put them to shame, show them you are not someone of importance. And yet they take joy in that shame. They take joy in that dishonor because in that dishonor they're being counted worthy of suffering for Jesus. And each day, despite what they're told, they're back in the temple preaching the gospel in word and in deed. To me, it seems pretty intense. To me, it's pretty convicting because in our culture, we like to complain a lot. Especially being from Buffalo, we have a lot we complain about. We complain about the bills. We complain about the weather. And almost as soon as it stops snowing, we complain it's too hot. <laughs> but then we, you know, we complain about all different things in our life. We complain we don't have enough money. We complain people don't understand us. We complain about our relationships. We complain that life doesn't turn out just as we hoped it would. And yet here these apostles are, they're beaten, they're imprisoned, they're condemned, and yet they're rejoicing that they're counted worthy of Jesus. And it makes me wonder, if I were in the same circumstance, would Jesus be enough for me? See, we live in a culture where Christianity has traditionally held a, a place of prominence. Uh, in other words, we live in a country where being a Christian has social advantages, or at least it has had social advantages. That's kind of, we're kind of losing that. But it's a culture where there's advantages to be Christian. And at the very least, it's very comfortable to be Christian, to become a Christian. You know, think about it this way. If someone wants to become a Christian, they're invited to come into a church that's air-conditioned, with coffee bars and lights and screens 
and modern uh, music, it's a comfortable place to be. Not so in some other cultures. In some other cultures, to come to Jesus is an automatic death sentence. If you come to Jesus, there's a mark on your back that you have the potential of being put to death. Calvin Miller tells about a doctor that he knows, and he struggles with the fact that as soon as someone that he witnesses to comes to faith, they may lose their life. He says this, how do, you, how do you think I feel in longing to lead people to Christ, knowing that the moment my patients receive Christ, they face a life and death contempt in this culture? So the question I'd like for us to consider is if all the stuff were taken away, if all the accessories related to Christianity were taken away, if all of the comfort of Christianity was taken away, and if it was not only uncomfortable but dangerous to be a Christian, would Jesus be enough? David Platt writes this in his book Radical. He says, what if we take away the cool music and the cushioned chairs? What if the screens are gone and the stage is no longer decorated? What if the air conditioning is off and the comforts are removed? Would his word be still enough for his people to come together? When I was in high school, uh, my family started going to the chapel. Um, if you're not familiar with the chapel, it's a large church in the area. And uh, back in those days, the chapel was on North Forest Road, a lot smaller than it was is now. And a short time after we started going, the leadership announced that they were having, you know, in the process of purchasing. Uh, some land and building a new church to reach more people for the gospel. And uh, this new church that they were going to build was a huge multi-million dollar facility. Had state-of-the-art lights and sound, could hold thousands of people, just a beautiful building. And in saying this, I'm not saying anything negative about the chapel. I love the chapel. Uh, have great friends there. It's an awesome church. But as, as a high school student, I think about that and I, I loved that. I was so excited about them building this big church. And any opportunity that I had, I would tell people how great my church was. How we were going to build this ginormous building and how it was going to hold so many people and be so awesome and how great my pastor was. And then I think back now and I think I never told people how great Jesus was. I told them how great my church was, how great my pastor was, but I didn't tell them how great Jesus was. You see, I, I was kind of in love with the accessories of Christianity more than I was in love with Jesus. Then God called me into ministry, and I thought of ministry as kind of working in a big place like the chapel, something where it was sanitized and beautiful, that I wouldn't have to deal with real problems. That I would just kind of sit up in an ivory tower and people would want to listen to all the wisdom that I shared. I was in love with the things related to Jesus, but I wasn't as much in love with Jesus. And then as I walked down the road to prepare for ministry, I had to leave my church. I left because I went to a different town to go to seminary. And I had to reckon with the fact that all those things were gone. I wasn't going to go back there. 
I was going to go to different expressions of the church that, was, that weren't used to what I was used to. I realized that ministry was going to be hard, that ministry was going to be sometimes painful, dealing with real issues. And I had this crisis where I had to think to myself, is Jesus really enough for me? If you take away all that stuff, all that beauty, all that glamour, all of that of those things of what I thought it meant to be in ministry or to love Jesus, is Jesus still enough? That's a question I'd like for us to consider today. If everything else was taken away, would Jesus be enough for you? And when I'm saying that, I'm not saying, do you believe that God can handle anything in your life? I'm not saying, do you believe that God can provide for you? I'm saying, even if he chooses not to provide materially, even if he chooses not to provide relationally, would he be enough? Would his presence be enough for us? Would Jesus be enough for us if everyone in our lives were telling us to, to turn away from Jesus? That's what the apostles were being told over and over and over again. To be silent. Just don't share Jesus. Just keep your mouth shut and everything will be okay. Would Jesus be enough for you if all the social advantages of Christianity were taken away? If it were dangerous to be a Christian? If there was a threat of imprisonment or even death to become a Christian. If instead of meeting a greeter when you came in the doors of the church, if there was a police officer ready to take you to prison, would Jesus be enough? Would Jesus be enough for you if all the joys of life were taken away? The apostles were thrown into prison. They couldn't sleep in their own bed. They were separated from their families. They couldn't do the things that they wanted to do, and yet they rejoiced. Would Jesus be enough for us if all the joys of life were taken away? See, it's easy to lift our hands in worship when everything's going well and God provides all the things in our life that we want him to provide. But what about when we lose our job? Would Jesus be enough for us? What about when we lose our home because we can't pay the mortgage? Would Jesus be enough for us? What about when we lose a loved one? Would Jesus be enough for us? What about when your kids don't want to have anything to do with you? Would Jesus be enough for you? What about when your spouse deserts you? Would Jesus be enough for you? What about when you lose your ability to do the things that you enjoy to do? Would Jesus be enough for you? Would Jesus be enough for you when, if things got really painful? The apostles, again, would have been whipped probably to the point of death. They would have been whipped on their chest and on their back with a calf's hide, a three-stranded calf's hide, would have been incredibly painful, incredibly difficult to endure. Would Jesus be enough for us if we endured such pain? Would he be enough for us if we were diagnosed with cancer? Would he be enough for us if we walked through a loved one who was diagnosed with cancer? Would we, he be enough for us if we have to struggle with mental illness? Would he be enough for us if we were had to struggle with debilitating pain that seemingly doesn't make sense. We ask these questions and the clear answer, the Bible answer, is yes, Jesus is enough. And the Bible tells us in a number of places that he is enough. Psalm 1611 says, in your presence there's fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. 
John 6 says that Jesus is the one who satisfies. He says, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Psalm 107 verse 9 says this, for he satisfies the longing soul. The hungry soul he fills with good things. Matthew 13, 44 to 46 talks about the value of the kingdom of heaven. He says the Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has, and he buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. So Jesus is enough. We know that academically, we know that theoretically, but that's only part of the question. That's only the Bible school answer. The question is, is Jesus enough for you? Is he enough for you? And I believe that sometimes God allows us to walk through difficult circumstances to kind of test us, to show us what our hearts are really like. To show us if Jesus is truly our treasure. Remember the story of Job. Job was a man who was blessed by God. He had everything in life, had a great family, had great wealth. Everything was going smoothly, and God says, consider my servant Job. And Satan comes to him, and Satan's like, of course he's going to praise you. Of course he's going to love you. You give him everything. You've blessed him. He loves all the stuff that you give him. But as soon as you take that away, he's going to curse you. And so God says, you can do it. You can take those things away. And God, and God allows Satan to take those things away from Job. And Job ultimately passes the, the test. But in essence, the, the question that God was asking Job was, Job, am I enough for you? Am I enough for you? Even if all the other things are taken away, am I enough for you? Will you trust in me? Remember the story of Abraham. Abraham had prayed for years and years and years that he would have a son. Someone to carry on the family name. Yet his wife was barren. And then after a long period of time, at a very old age, his wife uh, conceived, had a child, miraculously. And yet after that time, God calls Abraham to go up to Mount Moriah and to sacrifice that son Isaac on the altar. And of course he didn't make Abraham go through with that sacrifice, but he was ultimately asking him, Abraham... Am I enough for you? Abraham, even if all of your hopes and dreams are taken away, even if your heir, your chosen one, is taken away, will I be enough for you? They passed the test. The apostles passed the test. They faced persecution, imprisonment, beatings for the sake of Christ. And yet they still believed that Jesus was enough. Andrew Brunson uh, was a Christian pastor from North Carolina. And he went to Turkey to be a church planner, missionary there. And he was a church planner for 20 years. Uh, the first several years of his ministry, uh, he kind of flew under the radar, just doing kind of normal uh, things related to ministry. Saw some people come to know the Lord. But in 2016, all of that changed when there was a failed coup on the Turkish government. And as a result of that failed coup, they, the government kind of went around and gathered up journalists, pastors, anybody who they thought might be suspicious and threw them in prison. 
he was held in prison for a year without charges and nearly spent, spent nearly two years in prison. But though he spent two, only two years in prison, he didn't know how long he would be in prison. In fact, he was facing a trial, and uh, this trial, he knew that the people involved in the trial weren't concerned with the truth at all. All they wanted to do was pin him with some charges, and they brought just outlandish charges, like that he was a terrorist. And they charged him with 35 years. He was looking at potentially 35 years in prison. Not only that, this trial was set to last probably a couple years, two or three years potentially. And he was told that while the trial was going on, he would be kept in solitary confinement the entire time. And he describes in a chapel talk at Wheaton College how he thought of persecution in kind of a glorified sense. Before this, this happened to him, he thought about being persecuted for Christ, and he thought about it as not being very bad. He said, well, he thought, you know, if you're put in prison for Christ, Christ would sustain you, and Christ would give you this incredible vision of his presence. And he was put in prison. He didn't have any of that. He was separated from his family. And not only that, he felt like he was separated from God. Just a few days after being in prison, or a short time after being in prison, he felt like God had left him. He felt like God had abandoned him. Finally, when the trial started, he reached a breaking point. He was alone in his solitary cell, filled with fear and grief and anguish. And he just started bawling uncontrollably, weeping. And he cried out to God, and he's like, where are you, God? Why are you so far away? And then he continued weeping. And then words came from his mouth that he didn't expect. He started saying this. He started saying, I love you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. He said, I thought, here is my victory. Even if you're silent, I love you. He describes how this was a turning point. How in that moment he realized that Jesus was enough for him. That even if the whole world was taken away, that he still loved Jesus. All of us are in different places in our life. Some of us are in a place where things are going really well. Others of us are facing difficulty where maybe our lives are filled with fear, anxiety, grief, reality is we'll all face different trials in our life. But what will we do when the supports are taken away? None of us longs for bad things to happen. None of us looks forward to suffering. But when we experience that, when the things that we hold so dearly and so tightly are taken away, would Jesus be enough for us? Would we be able to say, like Brunson said, I love you, Jesus. Would we be able to cry out even though you take everything? Even though all of these things have happened to me, you're enough for me. I'd like to close by reading the lyrics of a hymn written by Fanny Crosby a number of years ago. It's called Give Me Jesus. It's a little bit different than the hymn that you may have heard before on the radio. The lyrics go like this. 
Take the world, but give me Jesus. All its joys are but a name. But his love abideth ever, through eternal years the same. Oh, the height and depth of mercy. Oh, the length and breadth of love. Oh, the fullness of redemption. Pledge of endless love. Take the world, but give me Jesus. Sweetest comfort of my soul. With my Savior watching over me, I can sing though billows roll. Take the world, but give me Jesus. Let me view his constant smile. Then throughout my pilgrim journey, light will cheer me all the while. Take the world, but give me Jesus. In his cross, my trust shall be. Till with clearer, brighter vision, face to face, my Lord, I see. Is Jesus enough for you? Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are our God who is enough for us. That no matter what happens in our life, that we can find hope, we can find renewal, we can find strength in you and your presence. Lord, all of us are in different places. All of us have different struggles. Lord, I pray that when each one of us faces our trials, that we would be able to say, you're enough for us. That you alone satisfy our hearts. That even when we face sorrow, even when we face grief, even when the things we love so dearly are taken away, that you and your presence are enough for us. God, give us that strength. Give us that heart through your Holy Spirit. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.